0: Well, Queen Elizabeth, uh, she's been Queen of England for 68 years, isn't that incredible? Uh, She has seen 14 British Prime Ministers come and go during her reign. Uh, What an incredible effort. Her coronation in 1953 was the first ever broadcast on television. Uh, She's experienced marriages, divorces, deaths and births all around her. She's reigned over dozens of celebrations and crises. That's just in her family. (laughs) Uh, The world she lives in today is very different from the one she was crowned in. She's seen wars, revolutions. She's seen nations rise and fall, commonwealth countries given their independence. She's seen floods and droughts, famines, earthquakes, tsunamis. She's seen the fall of the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall. And through it all, she's been there. She's been the ruler of the British Empire wearing her hats, her sensible shoes, carrying her matching handbags, walking her corgis. From start to finish, it's a story about her reign. And we see that in Matthew's Gospel. From the start of Matthew's Gospel to the finish, it's a story of the reign of Jesus the King, the one who brings in God's kingdom. The story began the very first verse of Matthew. Uh, with this introduction, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, uh, the son of Abraham. Uh, That's King David. Uh, The Magi came looking for Jesus, uh, the one born King of the Jews. Uh, When Matthew begins Jesus' ministry, uh, we hear his message, which was, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that's a summary of Jesus' whole ministry his teaching, his miracles, showing what the kingdom was like, showing what it meant for Jesus to be king. And as we move into these last chapters of Matthew, uh, we've seen what an important theme kingship is. Uh, It talks, Matthew describes the kingdoms of this world and compares them with the kingdoms of God. Uh, His disciples are pursuing earthly influence and power. But Matthew wants to show us Jesus, the servant king, who takes up a cross and demands that those who follow him do the same. He comes into Jerusalem. The crowds want to make him king, uh, so he'll lead an uprising. But instead, he ambles into town on a donkey. Jesus' eyes are on a different kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. He knows that Daniel's vision about a son of man coming on the clouds into heaven's throne room is about him, he knows that he will be crowned by God with all glory and honor and power, not just over Israel, but over every nation. If we jump to the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, we see Jesus resurrected, vindicated, victorious, and he sends his disciples out into the world, equipped with the truth that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. He's king. From start to finish, Matthew's biography is a story about Jesus' kingship. And it's a theme, if we zoom in on chapter 27, it's a theme that keeps popping up today as well. First up, we see turning the other cheek. Verse 27, Jesus has been sentenced to death. The Roman soldiers take him down to the barracks for some fun. And the point of their ridicule is that this weak, abandoned, silent man is sentenced to death for the crime of being the king of the Jews. This is the best this miserable nation of Israel can come up with. They're not just making fun of Jesus, they're making fun of Israel. The whole garrison gathers, we're told. They strip him. They find a scarlet robe somewhere to drape over his bare shoulders. Someone finds a thorn branch and twists it into a rough crown and jams it down on his bowed head. Someone finds a broom handle to put in his hand as a royal scepter. And then the fun begins. They kneel before him. They ridicule him. Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him, take his staff off him and hit him on the head with it but he won't play along. He's no fun. He doesn't retaliate. He just takes it. He turns the other cheek. He bears the shame and the insults precisely because he is king of the Jews, just a servant king. Verse 31, the soldiers get bored. They dress him in his own clothes. They lead him out to crucify him. He's too weak to carry the cross. So they grabbed Simon from Cyrene to carry it for him. And Matthew, I think, picks up details here that reminds us of the type of kingdom Jesus is bringing. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, Jesus says that whoever obeys, whoever obeys his teaching would be great in the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of the kingdom of heaven. And then he teaches, in chapter 5, You've heard it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Here we have Jesus practising what he preaches. He turns the other cheek. He gives up his tunic and cloak, uh, and then he's forced to go the extra mile. That's what it means to be great in this kingdom of the servant king. Uh, verse 33, they come to Skull Hill, Golgotha. He's crucified there. He is lifted up in front of them, but, but not in honour and exaltation. The passing crowd slow down just long enough to hurl their insults at him. And the soldiers sit at his feet, not in submission to his rule, but to gamble for his clothes. And his offsiders, one on his right and one on his left, are not his loyal counsellors, rewarded for their faithful service, but two criminals, meeting the same shameful fate as him. And they're ridiculing him as well, while his true disciples are nowhere to be seen. And over the whole scene, the ironic sign, the crime he's being executed for, verse 37, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Ironic because it was meant by Pilate as an insult, not just to Jesus, but to the whole Jewish race. To put them in their place. Yet it's ironic because it speaks better than Pilate realises. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's king of the kingdom. They won't stop him simply by murdering him. Do you notice the taunts of the crowd? Verse 40. If you're the son of God, come down. The leaders... Repeat the taunt. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. The irony is, that's the very reason he won't come down. He will bear the cup of suffering because he is the son of God. A son who always does the will of his father. It's also the reason God won't abandon him on the cross because he's pleased with his son. Jesus can bear the agony of the cross because he knows that in time God will vindicate his uh, pleasing son. He just won't do it this side of death. And death is coming. Verse 45, from midday to 3pm there's darkness over the whole land. The sun fades because the sun is fading. And Jesus quotes Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not because he's asking a question. He's pointing to the experience of the psalmist who wrote the whole psalm. He's not just quoting one verse. The psalmist felt abandoned by God. He was surrounded by dogs who pierce his hands and feet. But the psalmist goes on and he sees God's rescue. He looks forward to being able to praise God with the rest of his congregation. And he says towards the end of Psalm 22, verse 23, "'You who fear the Lord, praise him. "'All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. "'Revere him, all you descendants of Israel.' For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of his afflicted one. He's not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And at the end of Psalm 22, the psalmist is able to proclaim in verse 27, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules for nations I think Jesus was reciting this whole psalm to himself on the cross it's a song about how God's kingdom will ultimately triumph despite appearances despite short term in the long term God always wins that's the big idea of this psalm that's what Jesus needed to, to keep him there on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a cry of despair or faithfulness, uh, faithlessness. It's a cry of trust. Because the rest of the psalm goes with it. Trust in the face of the worst sort of physical and spiritual suffering. Trust that his father would bring him through it. Just like he did for the psalmist. Bring, bring victory out of defeat and, would, uh, and his kingdom would prove victorious. Jesus doesn't last much longer. Verse 50, there's one final cry and then he gives up his spirit. It's, a, it's an interesting phrase. It's come into English language so much that we don't even notice it anymore. But if you think about it, His spirit wasn't taken from him. He gave it up. It's it's a description that it's like it's a deliberate act of his will. As the son of God dies, it seems like his whole creation begins to mourn. Everything was made by him. Everything holds together because of him. And now at his death, creation falls apart. not there in the NIV, but verse 51 begins with, and behold, sights that eyewitnesses would never see again. The sky is dark in the middle of the day, but then the earth shakes, rocks split. When Jesus dies, in a sense, all the kingdoms of this world die with him. They pass their use-by date. They are superseded and outdated, and the kingdom of God begins. Kingdoms that threaten with fear and death, kingdoms that come and go, that rise and fall, they're no more. And at his death, Jesus brings in a kingdom that will never fall. For us, God's kingdom begins now as we live within earthly kingdoms. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we fix our eyes on God's eternal death-conquering kingdom brought in by Jesus. As we live in the midst of all of the earthly kingdoms around us, it it does take the eyes of faith to see God's kingdom ruling like this. Uh, That earthly kingdoms will pass away. It takes faith to see that. But the events of Easter... Help us to see things with that faith perspective. Those earth-shattering events are a sign of things to come. Earth-shaking, rock-splitting. One day God will bring this world, this rotten, festering world, to an end with all of its kingdoms and will bring in his perfect, restored new heaven and earth. And it will all happen because of what Jesus was doing on the cross. But they're not the only signs of things to come. Verse 51. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom. Completely destroyed. A sign of things to come. Jesus had predicted it. He'd pronounced judgment on the temple already. A few days earlier... The whole system was rotten and corrupt and broken. It was headed for the scrap heap. And now, in Jesus' broken body, all the animal sacrifices become obsolete because sin has been punished once for all. And before long, it won't just be the curtain, the rest of the temple will follow. The whole building will be smashed to the ground, to this day, never rebuilt. But they're not the only signs of things to come. Verse 52, events not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. The tombs broke open. Bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. The sign of things to come in the short term the first hint here of Jesus' resurrection but not only for Jesus these people were a taste of better things to come for any who follow him Jesus defeats sin and death in his death and so death is wound back for many holy people around Jerusalem I'd love to know who they were their tombs break open and out they come just imagine it. And what do holy people do? Well, they find somewhere holy to go. They, they go to the holy city after Jesus' resurrection. And there's plenty of people who see them. Can can you can you imagine it? You're walking down the, the street one one day and, was that Jeremiah? I'm sure I went to his funeral. Is that Ma- Mary? What It would be hilarious. Now, presumably they would go on to die again. But they're a foretaste of what will one day happen to all of us. When Jesus returns, we will all be raised. Uh, This time for eternity, not temporarily. Whether we're Christian or not, we will all be raised. We will all be given eternal bodies for a physical eternity. Some will be raised to judgment Others will be raised for acquittal. And it all depends on our attitude to Jesus. Well, these were amazing events. Even the very soldiers who'd been ridiculing Jesus respond. Now, verse 54: When the centurion and those and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Creation bows down to its creator, the Son of God. The crowds and the leaders had been mocking when they said it, but, but they were right. And verse 55 witnessing at all were many women. More about the women on Sunday. Verse 61 Joseph of Arimathea comes and takes the body, and the women are watching as well. Watching that as well. Matthew includes all the details needed for others to retell the story. So the next generation will believe. Because Jesus' resurrection is when the story really gets unbelievable. As if tombs opening and dead people rising wasn't unbelievable enough. Because we know that at Jesus' resurrection there were false stories that were circulated. The disciples stole the body. Jesus wasn't really dead. The women had gone to the wrong tomb, or it was a different body. But Matthew's account from verse 57, this little paragraph, it answers all of those objections. The women follow from the cross to the tomb. There's no mistake, they go to the right tomb, and it's a new tomb. There's no other bodies that share the space. It's sealed with a large stone, it's guarded by Roman guards, there's no sneaking in and out with the body. It may be hard to believe, but there's no easier alternative. Matthew and others retold that story in the months and the years that followed. And they found that people believed it. It was reliable. And the lies that the Jewish leaders circulated didn't hold water. And instead of staying in Jerusalem, history tells us that holy people who followed Jesus would flock to a different hill, not to Jerusalem, to the broken, superseded meeting place of the temple. But they would flock instead to another hill, a hill outside the city, to Golgotha, where their servant king was crowned, to bow in grateful worship, to say, along with the the centurion and the other guards, surely he was the son of God. And while earth uh, earth shakes and rocks split, Jesus shakes things up literally, but he went on to shake things up metaphorically, to shake the world. Uh, The message of Jesus' defeat of sin and death spreads from one end of the world to the other. He's changed the world like no one else. A guy called James Allen wrote a poem called "One Solitary Life, uh, describing Jesus, a simple carpenter who never wrote a book, never travelled more than 300 kilometres from his birthplace. Uh, But in part, he, he writes this, 19 centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. And his life reaches its climax on this day, on Good Friday, on Golgotha, with the barbaric and unjust murder And then its conclusion three days later at his resurrection. As you witness the events around this first Easter, how do you respond? Do you stand with Jesus like the women? Do you honour and worship like the centurion? Surely this was the Son of God. Is Jesus' death shaking your world? Is it rocking your self-sufficiency and your pretension? Is it shaking the cages of your ambition and your comfort and your pride? Uh, Is Jesus making a difference in your work, in your relationships, in your priorities? Is he your king? Or are you resisting him? Uh, Does something else rule your world? Is it easier, less scary, just to keep your own hands on the wheel rather than let Jesus rule your life? That's the original sin of humanity, thinking that they want to run things themselves to be king. But it's foolishness. We can't control anything in our world. Why would we want to hold on to our control? If there's anything the last year and a bit has taught us is that we can't control anything. Why not hand it over to Jesus, your King? Let him shake your world. Bow before him, honour him, worship and serve and follow him. That's how we respond to our servant King. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus and to trust him. Amen.